This EHIV Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Co-location and consolidation of care is an excellent example of harm reduction, where the goal is not necessarily to achieve abstinence from drugs, but more to improve adherence to ART, to lower the risk of death from opioids, and to be engaged in a supportive network. Harm Reduction Strategies for People Who Inject Drugs. Welcome to EHIV Review. People who inject drugs remain a continuing source of HIV infection and transmission. What are the barriers to increased HIV screening in this population, and how can they be overcome? What harm reduction strategies to get them and or keep them in care have been shown to work? Are they cost-effective, and how can they be replicated? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Josh Barokas, an assistant professor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine and an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center, and Dr. Ragini Jawa, an infectious disease and addiction medicine fellow at Boston Medical Center. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and click on the Volume 6, Issue 2 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Barokas, Dr. Jawa, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Great to be here. Our first learning objective focuses on the barriers to HIV screening in persons who inject drugs and the impact of improved harm reduction services. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Jawa, with a patient scenario. We saw a patient, a homeless young man, with a past medical history of injection drug use severe opiate and methamphetamine use disorder. We've had multiple emergency room visits and hospitalizations in the past year. But what's most notable is that recently he was admitted for a bacterial hip infection and discharged on a course of antibiotics. He has been and continues to regularly inject fentanyl and methamphetamine multiple times a day. We saw him present at a local low-barrier buprenorphine clinic where he was screened for sexually transmitted infections. And one day after his visit, his fourth-generation HIV test returned positive. Clinic providers informed him of his results. So this is a person who had multiple emergency room visits as well as hospitalizations over the past year, but his HIV was never diagnosed. Who should have been responsible for his HIV testing, and what do you think went wrong? Dr. Barokas? Well, this is a patient that fits the profile of a person who injects drugs who is often missed, has multiple missed opportunities for HIV screening, despite multiple touch points with the healthcare system. As you mentioned, our patient was not screened for HIV in a timely manner. And I think that this is in part due to the lack of definitive guidance for screening for HIV among people who inject drugs by both the CDC as well as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. You know, suboptimal screening and testing is problematic for at least two big reasons. One, from a public health perspective, and two, because of the risk of disease progression in the individual. Dr. Jawa, what's the recent evidence say about HIV screening of people who inject drugs? Well, a recent article in 2020 by Bull Otterson and colleagues found that less than 10% of people who inject drugs are currently screened for HIV. 
that's quite a low number, particularly because they're at high risk of getting HIV through their injection drug use. This study shows that males, older persons, persons residing in rural areas, and persons with less frequent access to healthcare services are predominantly and at greatest risk of not getting screened for HIV. So a possible step towards increased screening would be to have standardized screening guidance for this population, whether it's bundled testing or using electronic medical record logic. For instance, if a person who injects drugs is admitted for endocarditis, that an EMR would automatically alert a provider to do an HIV test. And the benefit of having standardized screening guidance or utilizing other bundled testing would be to remove the onus of screening off of the clinician and making it more automatized. The patient you described, he was injecting different drugs throughout the day. Is that right? Our patient was injecting multiple substances. He was injecting an opiate, fentanyl, and methamphetamine multiple times a day. What about harm reduction services? Were there any he was able to take advantage of? He was able to get his injection drug preparation equipment from a local needle exchange in our city. Unfortunately, he occasionally had to share his needles because he didn't have ready access to sterile supplies. The study I mentioned previously... By Bull Otterson and colleagues. You got it. Those investigators found that venues more attuned to people who inject drugs, such as drug rehabilitation centers, inpatient treatment centers, STD clinics, reproductive health centers, or public health outreach units are more likely to screen people who inject drugs for HIV than the traditional venues such as a physician's office or a hospital. Syringe exchange programs are a tried and true evidence-based harm reduction intervention that we've been using to prevent HIV transmission. And their role in our communities, particularly for people who inject drugs, is to provide sterile injection equipment, on-site infectious disease testing, naloxone distribution, naloxone being the overdose prevention medication, and they serve an important point of entry for healthcare and social services for our patients. In general, Dr. Barocas, how available are these kinds of services? Of the 220 vulnerable counties for an HIV outbreak that were identified by the CDC, only 47 of them have a syringe service program. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this. Existing barriers to syringe service programs include, but I will say aren't limited to, community objections, punitive laws, the inability to apply or use federal funds for purchasing needles or syringes. Now, if we think about the most, I think, infamous case in recent history of an HIV outbreak, and that was in Scott County, Indiana, HIV outbreak among people who inject drugs. There were no syringe service programs in Scott County, Indiana at the time. A few modeling colleagues of ours, William Goodell and, and others, did a beautiful study where they showed that had there been existing syringe service programs or at least a rapid implementation of one in Scott County, we would have prevented a number of HIV infections at the time. So we just have to remember that syringe service programs can serve as a 
major venue for HIV testing. They can avert a large number of HIV new infections, and they can be a critical pathway to getting people into care. Thank you, doctors, for bringing us this patient in discussion. Let's wrap up this first case by reviewing how our initial learning objective has been addressed. So, the barriers to HIV screening in persons who inject drugs and the impact of improved access to harm reduction services. What are the key things our listeners need to know? Dr. Jawa? The three things our listeners need to know are clinicians need firm guidance on testing intervals for people who inject drugs. And at the present time, it's at the discretion of clinicians and the clinician's risk assessment of the patient. From Bill Ederson and all, seems like we're not doing as good of a job. Secondly, harm reduction services, particularly through syringe service programs, are not only important for testing and screening people for HIV, but they serve as a linkage pathway or conduit to healthcare for people who inject drugs. And thirdly, testing can occur at any facility, but people who inject drugs are more likely to receive care at non-traditional sites, such as syringe exchange programs, rehabs, inpatient treatment centers, STD clinics, reproductive health centers, or public health outreach units. So we must capitalize on these facilities and try to improve the ability for our patients to get HIV testing through these facilities. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Joshua Parokas and Dr. Ragini Jawa from BU and Boston Medical Center in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice. And it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up With a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you, and please stay safe. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Joshua Barokas and Dr. Ragini Jawa from the Boston Medical Center about some of the barriers to HIV screening in people who inject drugs and the benefits of harm reduction services. Let's turn now to our next learning objective, the evidence supporting opioid agonist therapy and co-location for HIV-positive PWID. And let's continue with our original patient. To recap, he's male, young, and homeless. He's got a history of and is continuing to inject opioids and methamphetamine. And he was recently diagnosed with HIV. Dr. Jawa, update us if you would, please. What happened next to this patient? But during one of his prior hospitalizations, he was referred to an outpatient addiction clinic to initiate on a medication for his opiate use disorder. But like many patients, he was unable to attend post-discharge due to systemic barriers. He doesn't have a primary care doctor and has been regularly injecting fentanyl and methamphetamine multiple times a day so as to not have his symptoms of withdrawal. So for patients who are HIV positive and are continuing to inject drugs, what can be done to improve their care? Dr. Jawa? So one thing that can be done is to place our patients with severe opiate use disorder on opiate agonist treatment. And there's several, buprenorphine, methadone, our opiate agonist treatments, or OAT, which are effective in reducing not only opiate use, 
but cravings for opiates, opiate overdose, and unintentional death. Data shows that people who inject drugs on opiate agonist treatment inject more than 50% less frequently and are less likely to share their injection preparation equipment and have lower risk of HIV acquisition. Therefore, they have improved HIV outcomes and have a greater retention in care and virologic suppression. So then why have injection drug users remained such a continuing source of new HIV infections? It's a great question. Because only 8% of people who inject drugs currently receive opiate agonist therapy. Only 8%? Why is that? Well, there's a lot of existing barriers for opiate agonist therapy. One, it's often delivered in specialist care facilities. Two, it requires a separate training of a waiver from the Drug Enforcement Administration in the case of buprenorphine. Three, treatment distribution often has to be done at federally certified opiate agonist programs, and that's a great example for methadone. Those are some pretty strong barriers. Uh, Dr. Brokus, your thoughts about how to overcome them? So I think to overcome these barriers, we might want to consider co-locating addiction and HIV care. This could be both an effective and efficient way to expand services to this patient as well as others like him. It might also improve overall outcomes. So think about this. To facilitate continued management of our patient's concurrent opioid use disorder, he was enrolled into a patient-centered medical home where there was co-location of his HIV care and his addiction care. This meant that he could get his antiretrovirals as well as his agonist treatment at the same time by the same team of providers. So there was central management of his two clinical diagnoses. Now, this might include, in other places, infectious disease doctors, addiction medicine, psychiatry, along with case management and HIV peer navigators who I think can address the various social determinants of health. Now, are we talking about a single experimental model, or is this addiction care and HIV care co-location concept working on a larger scale? Can you give us some real-world examples? The co-location of HIV and addiction care is an emerging and highly successful model of clinical care. One great example of this is through the ACCESS cohort in Vancouver, British Columbia, where people who inject drugs have access to no-cost, low-barrier opiate agonist treatment through community general pharmacies and physician offices. Maud Saleh and colleagues studied this cohort, and what they found is when they were looking at ART adherence among people who inject drugs using a model, when these individuals were co-dispensed methadone and ART, in the same community-based facility, those individuals had a 52% higher odds of achieving optimal adherence to their ART and over 95% adherence to their ART as compared to patients who did not receive both medications co-dispensed at the same facility. If I can add, I think that co-location and consolidation of care has huge potential specifically because it reduces physical barriers for patients and actually allows providers to practice harm reduction in real time. It meets patients where they're at. It can help the highest risk patients who may be unstably housed, may not have a ton of access to resources, and really bringing everyone together 
might actually help facilitate medication distribution and coordinated care. So I think that this is an excellent example of harm reduction, where the goal is not necessarily to achieve abstinence from drugs, but more to improve adherence to ART, to lower the risk of death from opioids by being on opioid agonist treatment, to be able to manage co-occurring illnesses, and to be engaged in a supportive network of providers and staff that I think really have the patient's success in mind. All right, those are excellent points. But I need to ask you about the cost. Can co-location really be a cost-effective solution? Well, that's that's really the million-dollar question, isn't it? So first, we have to remember that no single intervention is going to be sufficient to prevent HIV across the board among people who inject drugs. It's going to take a combination of evidence-based interventions over a sustained period of time. And of course, this is going to cost money. Anytime we put new services out there, it costs money. But what we know is that opioid agonist treatment, that syringe service program, and that even just enhanced HIV testing and treatment services, these are all actually cost-effective interventions that also have the potential to prevent HIV transmission and improve health outcomes. I think that's a great place to leave it, doctors, and I want to thank you both for this case and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing how we fulfilled our learning objective. So, the evidence supporting opioid agonist therapy and co-location for HIV-positive persons who inject drugs. Dr. Jawa, what's the most important thing for our listeners to remember? The three things we think most important for your listeners to remember is that evidence shows that opioid agonist therapy improves HIV outcome and decreases the risk of community transmission, particularly among people who inject drugs. Secondly, Opiate agonist therapy improves retention in care, viral suppression, and decreases the risk of death. And thirdly, increasing the availability of harm reduction services, access to opiate agonist therapy, and testing services is truly important for all stakeholders, not only for the individual, but also for public health and the needs of hospital and healthcare administrators. Great wrap-up, Dr. Jawa. I want to thank you and Dr. Barokas for joining us for this EHIV Review Podcast. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkpmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen, and Merck & Company Incorporated. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening. Thank you.